Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded in the J. Christian Bay Rare Books Room at the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or at whatever hour you are tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I will be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. It was supposed to be the war to end all wars. At the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, the guns on the battlefield fell silent to mark the signing of the armistice that ended World War I. Yet for all the hope of peace and a return to normalcy, the First World War, as it would later be called, merely marked the opening of a century dominated by global conflict. As we come upon the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, the Our Missouri podcast is launching a three-part series on Missouri and the Great War. Each episode in the series will focus on dif- different aspects of the war, ranging from soldiers and civilians on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, to how the conflict has been remembered in memory and monuments. Today, in Part 3, we are speaking with Petra DeWitt, an assistant professor of history at Missouri University of Science and Technology. She earned a PhD in history at the University of Missouri-Columbia. Her book, Degrees of Allegiance, Harassment and Loyalty in Missouri's German-American Community During World War I, was published in 2012 and won the Missouri Book Award given out by the State Historical Society of Missouri. In her book, DeWitt explains how the patriotism and hysteria of World War I impacted Missouri as well as its substantial German-American community. Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast, Petra DeWitt. Well, good afternoon. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. Now, when we look at your book overall, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the origins of the project? What what kind of inspired you to pursue a project about Missouri's German-American community during World War One? Well, um, when I was a graduate student, professors assigned to books that I was supposed to read, and these books kept telling me over and over again that during World War One, the German culture in the United States came to an end because of the harassment, the oppression, the passage of Espionage and Sedition Act, and um, general violence that seemed to exist on the home front. And uh, I did not agree with those historians because I had been to Hermann. I had seen how much the German culture was still being preserved there. I, um, I knew Dolph Schroeder uh, up in uh, Columbia, and he had conducted several interviews with German-Americans uh, in Missouri. And um, I had listened to the, to the cassettes that he had recorded. And um, in, through this, I learned that in the 1970s, uh, people who went to the grocery store in Westphalia in uh, Osage County uh, told each other jokes in German so that they could get the punchline across correctly. And I thought, wait a minute, if they're still doing that, these historians must be wrong. There's something, something, or, or either they didn't come to Missouri to conduct their research. Maybe that was correct in Iowa. Maybe that was correct in Nebraska, but I seem to have a different impression. So I started researching this pro- this project, and uh, since I myself am a German immigrant, um, it helped to know the German language so I could access the correct kind of resources uh, to conduct my research and see if those historians were right or if I was going to be right. Now, as you kind of began this project, you said back in graduate school, 
Um, what mm-hmm. kind of archives and different materials and collections did you uh, look at, did you kind of research with to kind of build your argument and really get to the bottom of this, you know, disappearance of German culture versus continuation of German culture? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing that I did was uh, get my hands on newspapers. And, and, of course, we have this huge collection of newspapers on microfilm with the State Historical Society there in Columbia. And it's so convenient to get access to them if you're in any of the research centers, including here in Rala. So I didn't have to drive that far on many, on many days. But um, for about four years, every Friday afternoon, I would be reading these newspapers on microfilm, both in the German language newspapers as well as the English language newspapers throughout the state. And that gave me really a very good impression of what the situation was like here in Missouri, um, where there were pockets of um, what I call harassment, where there was no opposition to German Americans still speaking German in the street, where there were um, serious efforts to to ban the speaking of German on the streets, for example, or um, where something occurred, where somebody um, actually may have been beaten up for expression for, for expressing his hope to uh, that Germany would be winning this war. So uh, it gave me a good first impression. But then um, the papers of the Missouri Council of Defense were also very crucial in my research. Uh, the Missouri Council of Defense is this organization that, in essence, runs the war effort here in Missouri. And uh, they had very good correspondence uh, with uh, local people who reported incidents when somebody was making pro-German expressions or uh, perhaps somebody tried to interfere with the draft procedures with the examination of young men before the draft board and so on. So uh, the, the records of the Missouri Council of Defense uh, were absolutely essential to, in this research as well. Um, I went to several historical societies. Uh, you might be surprised how much information there is located in these local uh, historical societies, usually staffed by volunteers, but they have family genealogies. Um, they have church records. Uh, through these church records, I could see when ministers start preaching in German or, or when they stopped pre- preaching in German and started implementing English sermons, when they changed the teaching of confirmation classes from German to English and so on, when the people changed their minutes from, English, from, from uh, German to English. So um, uh, all these resources were very important. And then, of course, um, the National Archives in Kansas City, they had the district court records for Missouri. And uh, I could see through these records who the people were who were accused of violating the Espionage Act, the Sedition Act. And then I could um, statistically evaluate how many of them were Germans, how many of them were socialists, how many of them were Americans. And they're about equally divided between uh, each one of those groups. So there is nothing that stood out to me that said Missourians are accusing more Germans rather than socialists or Americans of disloyal behavior. So these are the, the, the most important resources that I collected and used in order to uh, put my book together. Now, before we can really look into the German-American community during the war, we kind of understand Missouri's uh, German immigration history. And particularly the what's today called the, the Missouri-German Heritage Corridor, which runs along the Missouri River Valley. Could you talk to us right. a little bit about 
the immigration of, of Germans to Missouri, both in the 19th and into the early 20th century? Sure. Um, uh, Missouri is, is not unique with, with, with Germans arriving. Um, Germans came in three major waves to the United States throughout the 19th century into the early uh, 1900s. Um, the first wave was really during the 1820s, 1830s for um, primarily economic reasons. You had Germans who came of peasant background or a, a craft, uh, craft background so that they had skills. But uh, because of economic developments in Germany, they saw these skills disappearing as Germany increasingly began to industrialize. Uh, they were living on small plots of land that no longer supported families. Um, they had adopted cottage industry to support, but uh, with industrialization, cottage industries actually declining as well. And then there were the revolution in, in revolutions in the 1830s um, uh, when people began to rise up and demand more democratic um, participation or parliamentary systems in the German Confederation. We have to remember Germany as a country did not yet exist. These were still smaller kingdoms, principalities, uh, duchies, and so on. And um, a few in that first wave uh, may have actually read Gottfried Duden's report. Uh, he had lived in Missouri and published a report upon his return to Germany. But it's really knowing through letters, somebody else, somebody who's already lived here in uh, Missouri, and um, they're writing letters forward and backward, and they're sending information. So it's through this correspondence that people learn about opportunities in Missouri, what land costs, and so on. And they're traveling. They're traveling in family units. Uh, they might be supported by an immigration society, like um, Friedrich Munch, for example, comes to mind uh, with the Gießen Society, um, who came over in the 1830s. Then there is a second wave of German immigration to the United States as well as Missouri, and that has to do with the 1848 revolution, as well as economic decline in the 1850s in the German principalities. Again, people traveled as family units. Um, uh, they may have um, joined immigration societies. But again, this so-called chain migration, you know somebody already here who's letting you know where there is available land, where there are jobs, and so on that will convince you where to go and where to finally settle. Um, some of these uh, individuals are well-educated. Um, they had been participants in the revolution and they are now living in exile, uh, trying to escape German, uh, the German principalities before they get arrested for having risen up against their king or their prince. So um, um, that in essence is, is that third wave of migrants coming over. Then during the American Civil War, uh, very few people come over because they don't want to come to a country that that is at war, of course. But then afterwards, you see another wave of German immigrants coming over, but they're a little different than the earlier two uh, waves. You've got individuals, you've got laborers um, who are looking for work, for opportunity, who as men perhaps are escaping the draft in uh, in Germany because as of 1871, Germany exists and it exists under Prussian leadership. So if you were drafted, you were drafted into the Prussian military and not every man wanted to become a member of that military because of its harsh discipline. So you have individuals uh, traveling much more than the family units that had come previously. And these now include unskilled 
individuals who are looking for work anywhere with the railroads, uh, with factories, um, what have you. Um, uh, one of these immigrants will be um, Gottlieb Hoon, who had apprenticed as a cobbler, but because of his socialist leanings, um, thought that he should leave Germany, especially under Bismarck's leadership and the anti-socialist laws uh, that the German government passed. And uh, he would eventually become a co-founder of the Socialist Party in the United States. Uh, he would also be the owner and editor of two newspapers in St. Louis, uh, the Arbeiterzeitung, which is the German language paper, and uh, the St. Louis Labor, which is a socialist uh, newspaper. Um, by 1900, the number of German immigrants is drastically declining uh, because uh, the German economy is booming. Um, you have strong nationalism um, during the Wilhelmine age in Germany. And uh, you have legislation that actually benefits ordinary common workers. You have old age pensions. You have workmen's comp. You have health insurance. Uh, these are legislations that Bismarck had established. So. Um, it, it doesn't make sense to move to the United States anymore because the wage gap has much narrowed. So even though you might make a little less money in Germany uh, in your wages, you still have the safety net that will assure that you have a decent life, a decent uh, living standard, whereas you had no such guarantees in, in the United States. So we have these three waves that, that uh, came and uh, when World War I comes around, uh, most Germans living in Missouri are actually second or third generation German American. Now, kind of overall in your book, this is a study of the entire state, uh, kind of German culture and identity in Missouri. But there are specific sections of the book that focus in on places like St. Louis and Gascony County and Osage County. Uh, what brought you to focus in on those localities and those regions? Um, first of all, the availability of resources. Um, they had the newspapers. Uh, all three of these had a, an English newspaper as well as a German language newspaper. Actually, um, St. Louis had two uh, German language newspapers. Um, and uh, the other resources, letters, um, church records, and so on. Uh, I had more resources in regard to those counties and, and the city. But there are other reasons why I contrasted those three. Um, St. Louis, in St. Louis, the German community is very heterogeneous. In other words, uh, the Germans are not all from the same identical area. You have Catholics, you have Lutherans, you have free thinkers, you have uh, reformed, uh, you have um, uh, German Jews. So religiously speaking, they come from various backgrounds. Economically speaking, you have anybody who is the, who is a low worker, an unskilled worker in the factory versus a middle class craftsman, a small business owner to the big brewer, Bush or Anheuser. Um, so you have um, a variety of economic backgrounds, uh, class backgrounds. Um, you have they're not living in 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 one ghetto or in one specific ward in the city. They're spread throughout the city uh, based upon their religion and, and, and their uh, economic background and so on. So I was thinking in St. Louis, you would have various experiences during the war based on all these different backgrounds. Gasconade County, however, is much more of a homogeneous 
um, society or, or community. Uh, the northern half of Gasconade County is primarily German. You have some Swiss and Austrians there as well. But the southern half is primarily American. So the reason I chose the county is, uh, would there be violence because of that split in the county? Would the Americans in the south try to impose their Americanness on the Germans in the northern half of the county? Um, to what degree would the Germans be able to maintain their Germanness? Uh, within the northern half of the county. Then the reason I, I chose Osage County is because I very quickly learned that their German newspaper shut down very quickly in early 1917, whereas in Herman that did not happen, and neither did that happen in St. Louis. So I have the contrast of the newspapers. Uh, in Osage County, you also have an incident uh, where a German-American um, speaks out, makes pro-German expressions, and as a result, a near riot develops. So you have a, a small incident here of, of potential violence, which did not happen in Gasconade County and did not happen on the scale as it did in Osage County in St. Louis. So for all of these different reasons, I chose those three um, locations. I make the occasional mention, as you said, of, of, of other places and something happens in, in, in Jefferson City for sure. Uh, somebody gets beaten up there for making a pro-German uh, expression up in uh, is it Saline County. Um, three Germans almost get uh, mobbed. Um, uh, but uh, those are, I only have tantalizing evidence and resources for these events. But here in St. Louis and Gasconade County and Osage County, I also had the best local sources, letters, and so on. I think that's an important point because when we think of the war uh, and kind of harassment and, and, and reaction to it, we often think of the kind of stories of people who are, you know, hauled into movie theaters or, or into the courthouse and forced to kiss the flag or forced mm -hmm. to kind of renounce their statements. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something that we kind of see sporadically throughout the country and it becomes kind of a theme but yet, what, as you point out, what did you find in Missouri? What was Missouri's standpoint when it came to the harassment and kind of questions of disloyalty aimed towards uh, German Americans? Right. Um, there is some. There is some violence. And, and I found evidence for, for five or six incidents. Like I said, in Jefferson City, uh, a man by the name of Fritz Monat, um, uh, who was of German birth and who was also suspected to be a labor agitator, was whipped and then forced to kiss the American flag. Uh, because he thought that Germany should be winning the war, and he publicly said so. Um, in Chamoy, uh, there is the son of a preacher who um, expresses uh, pro-German um, thoughts and uh, also denigrates the local home guard, uh, this volunteer unit uh, that uh, took the place of the National Guard when it was federalized into service. Um, uh, he, he speaks back to a lieutenant in the home guard, uh, they get into a fist fight. His supporters come. Uh, the lieutenant supporters come. It turns almost into a mob action. And uh, it's the captain of the home guard that finally settles the dispute. Um, there are evidence in, in St. Louis uh, where people get into fist fights because they disagree over uh, whom they should be supporting. But um, uh, in general, Missourians stick to the letter of the law. They use the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act to report people 
Um, Congress passed passed these two pieces of legislation, uh, the Espionage Act in 1917, uh, the Sedition Act in 1918. Uh, the Espionage Act made it uh, illegal to express any thought that might incite mutiny in uh, the military or interfere with the draft. Uh, and the Sedition Act uh, clearly limits your freedom of speech by stating that you can't say anything negative about your government during this time of war. And uh, Missourians would report anybody who made such expressions to the local authorities and then let those authorities determine, should there be a trial, should there not be a trial? Um, for example, in uh, Bland, Missouri, August Heidbrader made the suggestion that President Wilson ought to be stuffed into a cannon and shot out to, into the sea. So that was a threat on the commander in chief. And uh, local prosecutors really be believed he should be prosecuted under the Espionage Act. In the end, he got a $100 fine for being too outspoken. But um, that is how Missourians approach this. Now, if somebody really overtly um, uh, like Monat or or the, the, the son of the preacher, um, get into the face of somebody and virtually scream into their faces uh, that they're supporters of, of Germany in this war, uh, then it is likely that something might happen, that you know, fistfights break out or, or something similar. But otherwise, Missourians are very um, content with reporting them to the authorities. So it's 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 a way of a bottom up kind of controlling your neighbor using harassment, not not persecution, like so many historians have used um, in order to control each other's behavior. It's it's harassment. You know, somebody comes knocking on your door. They're in charge of collecting signatures for the Hoover Pledge. Uh, the Hoover Pledge was in November of 1917 when uh, housewives, uh, children in schools. Uh, Men were encouraged to abide by the regulations of having wheatless Mondays and meatless uh, Wednesdays, uh, conserve food, don't waste, buy consciously so that you only use what you really need to use. Um, these people would knock on your door and they would require that you sign that pledge right then and right there in front of them. Uh, that's harassment. That's intimidation. That's coercion, right? Um, uh, instead of we're going to paint your house yellow because you're not signing it right now. So um, Missourians were much more likely to use that kind of harassment, coercion to intimidate somebody. Um, liberty bonds come to mind. Um, the way that the United States government financed our participation in the war was through the sale of war bonds. They didn't call them war bonds. They called them liberty bonds because we were fighting to make the war safe for uh, the world safe for democracy, right? So um, bankers were often in charge of local committees uh, that were selling these bonds. Of course, the bankers know who has what kind of money in the savings account, right? So um, if they realized that wealthy people did not step up according to their wealth in the purchase of bonds, they would then quietly go to that person's home and talk to them and give them a good talking to so that they would come the following day and purchase additional um, liberty bonds. So it's, it's really that local coercion, that local intimidation um, uh, that existed in Missouri during the time period. Peer pressure is a powerful tool uh, to maintain local control. 
Now, how do these examples of kind of harassment and, and even some examples of violence compare to other states, and particularly Midwestern states around Missouri at the same time? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are examples of people actually being tarred and feathered in other states. Um, uh, their properties uh, painted yellow because they're cowardly. They're not stepping up and expressing their um, uh, patriotism to the United States. Uh, in Illinois, we actually have the murder of an individual, Robert Krager, um, for expressing his uh, pro-German sentiments. So um, those are oppressive features. I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to knock on somebody's door. And that's an entirely other thing to destroy somebody else's property uh, or to even threaten their life. So that's it's I don't want to call it timid. Um, it's it's much weaker in Missouri than it is in other states. And it's perhaps um, because Missourians don't like interference from the outside, uh, that Missourians don't like um, the national government to tell them what to do. Um, that there is perhaps a little resentment towards uh, interference in daily life through the draft, through uh, the conservation movements, uh, through um, the barrage of advertisements that come from the Committee on uh, Public Information. So um, it's, it's perhaps that nature of Missourians, that, that sense of independence uh, that um, shapes how they react to all the pressures around them during this great war. Before we return to our conversation, let's take a step back in time with Bob Pretty to an event from this week in history in a Missouri Minute. I'm Bob Pretty with this Missouri Minute with a story of loss. It's 1960 and the Missouri Tiger football team is for the first time ranked number one in the nation. The last game of the year, the Kansas Jayhawks are in Columbia, facing their third number one team of the year. They bring with them future NFL players John Hadle, Burt Cohen, and Curtis McClinton. Missouri's led by Ron Taylor, Mel West, Donnie Smith, Eddie Merrer, Norris Stevenson, and Dan LaRose. Coach Dan Devine is worried, says the Tigers shouldn't have to deal with being number one and playing Kansas in the same week. Kansas fumbles three times in the first quarter, but the Tigers can't turn the fumbles into points. It's scoreless at the half, but Kansas scores 10 in the third quarter, 13 more in the fourth. Missouri gets a single touchdown. Missouri will finish the year undefeated, though, with an Orange Bowl win over Navy because Kansas forfeits the game for using an ineligible player. But on this November 19, 1960, Missouri will have lost a game it later won, a conference title it later reclaimed, but a national championship it could not get back. I'm Bob Pretty for the Center for Missouri Studies. Now, one organization that you focused on, not only in, in this book, but also in a recent article in the Missouri Historical Review, was the Council of Defense. Uh, how did this organization uh, play a role in supporting the war effort on the home front? The Missouri Council of Defense um, was created through the National Council of Defense. We have a National Council of Defense, and uh, in order to carry out all the mobilization of resources, the drafting of the men, and so on, uh, the National Council of Defense decides to establish councils of defense in each one of the states. And that includes the Missouri Council of Defense. We are unique uh, in Missouri because at that time, the Missouri legislature only met every other year. So um, during World War I, the Missouri legislature was actually not in session. They had just a couple, three days after the declaration of war, they actually adjourned. So we were without an assembly. And the governor therefore decided that the Missouri Council of Defense 
would be in charge of the implementation of all the mobilization efforts in the state. He didn't see any need for um, a special session for, for the legislature like other states would be uh, doing. So we don't have a legislature that is telling uh, Missourians what to do during the war. Instead, you have this Missouri Council of Defense, and they really believe in decentralized um, governing. They're, they're not really governing. Uh, they're passing on information. Uh, they're passing on quotas to the Missourians. Uh, they are encouraging Missourians to abide by rules, guidelines, and so on. And uh, in order to decentralize their function, they set up county councils of defense throughout all of the counties in Missouri, and in some cases, even established township councils of defense. And they're placing local people in charge of enforcing or encouraging people to meet quotas, be it quotas for buying Liberty bonds, being quotas for um, uh, resources uh, conservation, uh, be it um, increasing yields uh, and reducing coal consumption, because coal is needed to um, move the trains as well as the ships that are transporting the soldiers and material over to the war front. So it is this um, Missouri Council of Defense that gets guidelines from the national government and then passes these guidelines on to these county councils of defense. And again, it's that it's that local pressure that then gets people into uh, abiding by these guidelines. It's not that somebody from the Missouri Council of Defense comes knocking on your door. It's your neighbor who comes knocking on your door. Um, but they're in charge. Uh, the Missouri Council of Defense, in essence, is in charge. But um, they also have not much power. And we can see that happening when it comes to a movement that begins to develop in 1918 to end the use of German in the state. You have several cities and counties that are trying to pass ordinances to stop the speaking of German on the streets or the use of German on the telephone because they make the argument, we as Americans, we don't understand you. You might be talking about the weather, but for all we know, you could also be talking about how to overthrow the government and make it German or whatever. So. Um, uh, the Missouri Council of Defense, all they could do is suggest to local leaders that German speakers control the behavior of other German speakers. They could not pass an ordinance, a law at the state level because they did not have the authority to do so. So um, while they might encourage local peer pressure, that is all they could do. They really did not have much power. It's a wonder they um, that they succeeded in, in, in people maintaining uh, a certain quorum of loyalty, a certain quorum of abiding by the rules that uh, the national government is sending down. We talked about peer pressure and examples of harassment, but how is loyalty, uh, an idea like loyalty, used as a mechanism to draw in support, not just simply from uh, German Missourians, but uh, people from various uh, mm -hmm. backgrounds in the state. Right. Um, uh, there are, in essence, um, there's a national definition of loyalty, and then there's a local definition of loyalty. Um, the national definition of loyalty is you buy your liberty bonds, um, children buy war saving stamps, uh, which is similar to the bonds, but just 25 cents a piece, um, uh, that you abide by the 
Food Administration guidelines for conservation that uh, the men sign up for the draft. Uh, when they are drafted, they go before the examination board. Uh, they only request exemptions as they are guaranteed by law. And um, if you do all these things at the national level, you are defined as loyal. Of course, when you bring it closer to the local level, then there are additional nuances to this loyalty. In some communities, if you are German-American, uh, it behooves you to stop uh, speaking uh, German in public. Um, or a local minister might be pressured into um, adopting or adding uh, English sermons. That is your expression of loyalty. You are showing that you are pro-American and not pro-German. Uh, in other cases, um, workers don't go on strike. Work. Um, uh, don't uh, interfere with the production process, such as in uh, St. Louis, for example. So um, uh, in, in, in Gasconade County, what I found extremely interesting was that uh, um, uh, one lady, uh, the sister of the mayor of Herman, Rosedein, she in essence becomes the eyes and ears for the Council of Defense. She opposes the Germans. Uh, and they're speaking German. No, she defines their loyalty as not out and um, helping the, the war effort by being volunteers in, in the Red Cross, for example, or young girls joining the SAMI clubs, uh, which are the, the youth organization within uh, the Red Cross. She looks upon uh, the political behavior of local people as being disloyal. So it's in essence a German-American finds the loyalty and disloyalty of other German-Americans within her own community. In another community, individuals who believe the only way we can really express our loyalty is if we change the name of the town. Um, how do, what do they change it to? They change it to the name of our general, Pershing. Other people do the same thing. They change the names of their businesses. Uh, in Kansas City, for example, the German hospital becomes the research hospital. In St. Louis, um, the German savings bank becomes the American savings bank. Um, uh, individuals <laughs> change their names to more English-sounding names uh, to appear more loyal to the United States. And um, so not to attract attention or a possible suspicion that they might be this loyal this time period. So loyalty has different meanings to different people and uh, in, in different areas. You mentioned examples of people changing their names or changing institutions' names, of newspapers kind of shutting down at, at various points. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that you had thought there was a, a different argument to be made about the impact of the war on German culture. So how was Missouri's German heritage and German culture impacted by the war kind of going forward in time in the 20th century? Well, that really depended on where you lived, um, whether you had lived in a tightly knit German community um, uh, based on common ethnic background, based on common um, religious background, and so on. Um, in communities like St. Louis, uh, this was very complex. Um, uh, many of the churches uh, transitioned over to total English language, uh, giving up the German sermons and uh, the instructions uh, for uh, congregants. 
um, uh, whereas some maintained but introduced more English uh, services. So you see a mixed bag here. Um, some associations, uh, be it social clubs uh, or, or what have you, or fraternities, uh, transitioned to the English language with the keeping of their minutes. But some, like the Liederkranz, uh, which is the singing society, um, uh, still maintained their Germanness, uh, sang German uh, songs, uh, kept some minutes uh, in German as well, and transitioned in the 1920s uh, over to the English language. So it's not um, it's not one way or the other. You have a mixed bag here in places like St. Louis, um, in Gasconade County, or even in Franklin County. There's evidence that even though during the war associations kept their minutes in English, as soon as the war is over, they're going right back to German. And again, transition to the English language at a later time. Um, uh, some churches, yes, will introduce English services, but will maintain their German services, uh, especially when you live in Lutheran communities, um, because um, Lutheran ministers thought that the only way you really get the faith, the sermon, the message of the sermon is if you heard it in the German language. Okay. Um, uh, in other communities, um, uh, you have, especially when they're not tightly knit, uh, there is pressure to tr quickly transition over to uh, the American way of life, to become more overtly American rather than uh, maintaining your uh, German traditions, at least openly. In other words, in several communities, your Germanness goes into the home rather than being also out in the public. But really, it is generational pressure that I think was more powerful than the war itself. Uh, the second or third generation of the children born on American soil, uh, they're already hearing German, uh, not German, uh, English in the schools. So, and they're interacting with their English neighbors. They are adopting the uh, English way of life. And really, during the 1920s, the so-called roaring 1920s, uh, they're much more interacting with outsiders of the German community. Uh, you have the automobile by the 1920s. You have decent um, infrastructure that allows the second or third generation to go away from the community and interact with Americans. So I think that interaction uh, in the younger generation has much more to do with uh, Germans becoming truly 100% Americans if they really ever do become truly 100% American. Uh, many of the holiday practices remained. Uh, many of the food habits remained. And of course, prohibition, again, in the 1920s has a tremendous impact on changing culture. If you're getting rid of the wine, if you're getting rid of the beer, you're getting rid of the, the beer garden, uh, the so-called Gemütlichkeit or sociability with your neighbors on Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon. When you when you destroy that with prohibition. You destroy a part of the culture. So I think the combination of generational pressures and prohibition um, has an equal impact, if not even a stronger impact than the war itself had on eventually Americanizing the German culture. It's very fascinating to think about. Um, are you currently working on any new projects that you'd like to discuss with us? Oh, yes, definitely. I'm currently working on the Home Guard uh, that was established during World War I. Um, as I indicated earlier, and World War I is the very first war where the national government federalized the National Guard. And uh, 
federal law, the 1916 Defense Act, and uh, uh, Missouri law uh, gave the governor the right to replace that National Guard with a volunteer organization uh, for the duration of the war. And uh, Governor Frederick Gardner did that. He, he called for the establishment of a Home Guard, an entirely volunteer organization that um, uh, would, would protect the Missourians during a national crisis, during a natural crisis, or, heaven forbid, should the Germans invade. Um, and um, so you have these men who often are members of the drill corps of uh, fraternal organizations, uh, like the drill corps of the Knights of Pythias, who have uh, uniforms, um, who have rifles, and they come together and uh, they form several regiments um, in uh, Missouri and on a weekly basis drill uh, in St. Louis at the armory or in Kansas City at the armory in uh, local communities at the local um, athletic field at the local high school, what have you. And uh, they, in essence, become this visualization of the war on the home front. And it's fascinating. What I'm doing right now is, is uh, comparing muster rolls with census information. And it's it's very tedious work, but um, uh, I'm beginning to to be inclined to believe that it's middle class men who are doing this, who who look upon this as an opportunity to express their patriotism as well as a little bit of masculinity. Um, uh, the St. Louis Post Dispatch, um, uh, with their famous uh, cartoonist um, uh, Fitzpatrick, uh, he actually had a cartoon in there portraying the Home Guard in a similar image as Theodore Roosevelt, who has this big club in his hand, and he's pursuing the spiked helmet laying in front of him, representing that Prussian military helmet. So there is a little bit of that masculinity aspect here as well. And uh, it's, it's um, they don't really have to do much. Um, there is a strike in Kansas City, and, and the, the Home Guard is called out to bring back law and order. Uh, there's a potential strike in St. Louis, and just the mobilization of the Home Guard uh, kind of peters out this this strike. Um, but it really is uh, evidence that men, especially men of, not of draft age, um, so younger than 18, older than 35, uh, could be using to publicly demonstrate their patriotism to, to their neighbors. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the Our Missouri podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. If you're interested in more of the people, places, culture, and history around our Missouri, check out the following upcoming events. Are you interested in helping preserve Missouri's German culture and heritage? The Missouri Humanities Council's German Heritage Program, beginning with the establishment of Missouri's German Heritage Corridor, aims to explore Missouri's extensive German culture and history. The corridor focuses on counties bordering the Missouri River in the north and south, from St. Louis City in the east to Lafayette and Saline counties in the west, where distinctive German communities grew up and still thrive today. Currently, the Humanities Council is developing and piloting various components to engage the public, including exhibits, digital tours, site interpretation, and educational programs. For more information on upcoming programs, visit mohumanities.org or contact Caitlin Yeager at 314-781-9660. Benton's Perilous Visions is an exhibit of Thomas Hart Benton artwork from World War II that showcases the artist's interpretation of the anxiety, horror, grief, and resolve 
that permeated American society during the war years. This exhibit will be on display in the main gallery of the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center until spring 2019. Are you an educator who is interested in developing a National History Day program at your school or using Missouri's primary sources in your classroom? The State Historical Society of Missouri is participating in several educated workshops throughout the state that will provide tips on exhibits, performances, programming, and finding effective resources within the Historical Society's vast collections. A National History Day workshop will be held at Gentry Middle School in Columbia on November 29th. Did you know that Missouri native Marlon Perkins lived a truly wild life? In addition to serving as the director of Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo and later the St. Louis Zoo, Perkins also hosted two popular television programs, Zoo Parade and Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. On December 6th, the Historical Society's St. Louis Research Center will host an opening reception for a new exhibit created by graduate assistant Miles Jinks entitled Marlon Perkins, Wildlife. With over 40 photographs, handwritten documents, and a few surprises pulled from the St. Louis Research Center's Marlon Perkins papers, this exhibit explores some of the most legendary, dangerous, funny, and touching moments of Perkins' life and highlights his contributions to wildlife conservation at the zoo, on television, and in the wild. Finally, share your love of Missouri with items from the State Historical Society's gift shop. Whether it's an indulgence for yourself or the perfect present for that hard-to-shop-for person, the gift shop offers books, art, note cards, and other gifts that highlight your state's heritage. On December 1st, the gift shop at the Columbia Research Center will hold an open house for patrons to browse, shop, and enjoy light refreshments. Historical Society members receive a 10% discount on all purchases. Plus, by shopping at the Society gift shop, you will help support the mission to preserve and share Missouri history. Can't make it to the open house? Don't forget the Historical Society's online gift shop at shop.shsmo.org. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org slash our dash Missouri.